I totally, um, you know, was closeted in that, that I can see, multiply that by a hundred for Sal, that this was not an option. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Cops. Can't go out there. You can't. Well, hello and welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta, we're going to talk about Hobo Code today. What do you think about that? I think I can't wait to, uh, no. <laughs> Did I stump you already? Yeah, you did. <laughs> oh my God. Where's the coffee? Um, so we talked to Brian Bat, and we're going to get right to it. Dan, how was it for you? Brian was just the best. Uh, couldn't have asked for more. Uh, very generous with his time. Very present. And listen, he, he, he knows why everyone's crazy about the character. And so you love, you love to hear that. Yeah. What you don't know if you're going to get such depth. He was so generous again, not with just with his time, but with his, personal lending of himself and his experience as a gay man playing this gay man. So really, without further ado, let's get to our interview with Brian Bat. Hey. Hey, thank you for being our first guest on They Coined It. I am honored. Last time I saw you, wasn't it in New York? It was in New York. Yeah. It was, are we allowed to say the piano bar? I... Of course, Marie's Crisis, right? Yes. And at Patty Clarkson, Patricia Clarkson, we were just at dinner with some friends and she's like, we've got to go and you've got to sing. I'm like, Clarkson, I'm not singing. I haven't done that. <laughs> and, I mean, I've done it, but not in a piano bar in the longest time. Anyway, it was really fun. Not just any piano bar. The piano the, bar. The, the legendary. Marie's Crisis, for those who don't know, it's a sing-along show tune acoustic piano bar. It is a sing-along bar. And what West they, Village. In the West Village, you know, in in the area of, of the duplex and Stonewall and right. And that staff since COVID, every single night has been performing their shifts from home and streaming and oh, how great. generating sing-along. Oh, wonderful. Well, I think Sal would have ended up there anyway. I think Sal would have <laughs> definitely been there singing, you know, some old show tunes as, as, as the years went on. As he got more and more close to his inner, his yeah. inner Sal. <laughs> so um, how's your pandemic going? I know you've got some projects and... You know, I was in rehearsal for a wonderful play in New York when all this went down. I, we were just about to leave New York to go to Hartford to try it out, then Toronto. It was the stage version, and it originally was a play before it was a film, of The King's Speech. And oh. I was playing Lionel Logue, the speech therapist. And it was a challenge and I loved every second of it. And it's, I think some of the best work I've ever done. Hopefully it will be see the light of day because it's a beautiful message um, yeah. about honor and dignity and doing the right thing, saying the right thing and stepping up to the plate under the hardest circumstances and unlikely friendships. And I just loved every minute of it. So who knows it might happen, but that's where it started. And then <laughs> they came in, we were about to go. We were run, doing a run through and the producers came in and said, Broadway's closed, uh, everything's closed. And I said, well, I, I guess I gotta go home. And I went mm. left the next morning, got here. My, my brother is diabetic and his daughter was on, uh, in, uh, on spring break. And um, she's 21 and she, believe it or not, she was a little debutante here in New Orleans. And, 
But we, I said, Jay, she can't come live with you and Andre. She's been exposed. She was flying through all the airports. And you go, right. I said, send her over here. And I, I had to break it to Tom. And he was like, that, that's totally cool. We love it, Kelly. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I'm going to have this little 21-year-old, you know. I mean, there's one thing to be the uncle, you know, where you can go and come and go. <laughs> but 24-7 for three weeks. We had the best time. She didn't complain once about, about the situation. We had cooked dinner together. We drank wine together. We had, and every night we made it some kind of theme. Like one night was wig night, and on the on the twelfth night of uh, uh, quarantine, we called it, it was twelfth night, so we all wore crowns. <laughs> Only in New Orleans, you know, that you would have a closet with all these things in it. We were ready for quarantine, believe we were it or ready not. For entertaining in quarantine, and the funny thing was trying to get her to watch our movies, and she was trying to get us her, us to watch her stuff. And we finally had to lie to her and just say, oh, yeah, this was filmed in 2015. And it was Moonstruck. Why did that character go to a payphone? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. It's retro. It's retro. And she, she's like, look at the hair, you know. So since that, it's been fine. We've, I've been do doing some Zoom things. Uh, I did a commercial for the airport here <laughs> so they could reopen with Big Frida and all the, some other musicians here. It's really fun. And, you know, there's just, I think they're just starting to have some filming going on, on here in New Orleans. And um, on another benefit for the theater that gave me my start, Le Petit Theater, um, in the French Quarter, and uh, some people that you might be interested sent little clips in, in, in support. One was the lovely Christina Hendricks. And the We've other heard was the of her. You've heard of her. And the <laughs> other one was Mr. John Hamm. So, you know, they both believe in, John started in the theater. So, you know, and so did Christina. So they said these beautiful things and a lot of other people are participating. So, you know, it's going to be awesome. That's going to, that's called the curtain call ball. And it's, yeah. it's Love like, it. So, you know, it's, I, I'm not one to sit around. I mean, although I did at the beginning of COVID, um, I'm working on a play. It's a one man play that we workshopped in New York. And then here it's called Dear Mr. Williams. And it's about me growing up in New Orleans, but it's told through my words and the words of Tennessee Williams. And, oh, wow. um, and I go back and forth with just lighting. I do mm. Tennessee's voice and then myself, but it's all of these characters were told through Tennessee. And it, it's, it's, it, I was very surprised how well received it was. So who knows? It might be on the boards one day. Hopefully. That sounds wonderful. That does sound wonderful. That's what I've been doing. You Great. Know? And redecorating. And redecorating. Wow. Well, yeah, and just say something about Hazelnut for, for our listeners. Tom and I opened Hazelnut. It's, it's a store. It's a home furnishings and gift shop in New Orleans um, on Magazine Street. We opened it in 2003, you know, right before Katrina. And the deal was, I was mainly did Broadway before um, that. And uh, I was supposed to do this show that got canceled. I put all my eggs in the basket to do this one big Broadway thing, and it got canceled. And we'd always had the dream of opening a shop on Magazine Street because Tom did that on Madison Avenue and I've always loved design and all that stuff. So he'd already done the business plan and I just said, let's, you know, check it out. Let's do it now. And, you know, God opened a window and we jumped out of it and everything seemed to work out. <laughs> and it's still there. It's www.hazelnutneworleans.com. And, you know, things I designed for the store and things we buy at market, although this, this, we've not been able to go to the markets right now because sure. um, they're in New York and <laughs> in Atlanta and Dallas. I think you had the first uh, designer masks I saw. They're the New Orleans yes. twall, yeah, more and twall. they're beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yes, I designed the New Orleans twall, and my dear friend Sonia Stubbe drew it for us, and it's been one of our signature things, especially after Katrina. And New Orleans is like New York in a way. It's like we love our city. 
and mm-hmm. only we can complain about it. You know, it's like we <laughs> we love it. We people love we love our home and everything about it and celebrate it. Um, so after Katrina, there was this big, huge resurgence of Nola love. So you know, we're mm-hmm. there to help it along. Awesome. Fabulous, awesome, awesome, awesome. Great to see that. Well, first of all, to anybody that's busy, we we love for a while. Like you said, you kind of everybody kind of downshifted. Yeah. For anywhere from a couple of weeks to a month or two. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of like, all right, we did that. I got to do something. Even if we're still not 100%, we got we to gotta rev the motor a little bit. I see these people not wearing their masks. It makes me crazy. And we got the numbers down here. I mean, we were a hotbed because we had just had That's carnival. Right. That's right. And Louisiana the numbers was. down now. But it, New Orleans is okay. It, I think it's the rest of Louisiana. I haven't, sometimes I don't even look at it. You know, I, do, I know what I'm what supposed to do, so I do what I could do. I'm a solution-oriented person, and I, I can't just sit. I mean, although the first couple of weeks I did sit back, and we all we did was walk, you know, if we're to get out, just get some sun and stay away from everybody. But it was nice to pe- press the pause button for a little while. Yeah. Because usually you're. I feel like I'm on this treadmill or on this, you know, you know, hamster wheel sometimes. And just to really, you know, my dresser posted something, my wonderful dresser from um, uh, from uh, Beauty and the Beast posted this wonderful meme and it said, maybe this is mother nature's way of saying, uh, go to your room and think about what you've done. <laughs> because, you know- I saw really, that, yes. And an, an, enfo- an enforced uh, yeah. rest. An yeah. enforced time out. And yep. it's, it's it's also like look at the look at the waters in Venice, look at the pollution in in India and all these other places. The world is natural. Thank God, the world is naturally healing itself. I just think we have to continue with that trend. Yeah, right. Learn learn the right lessons. Exactly. That's right. And phone bank. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's kind of our yeah. other task. For me, I spent the first six eight weeks pretty convinced I was going to die, and then like really, like I kept thinking I'm it. gonna have it tomorrow. I'm gonna have it tomorrow. I'm gonna mm-hmm. wake up tomorrow. Tomorrow is it? And then and then I crashed from that sustained trauma. Uh huh. And then I started coming out of that crash. And then right. Dan said, let's do a podcast. And and then that became you know figuring all this out became our a, a project. And and it got you know and now all, oh, and great. now I have like six projects happening. That's fantastic. You said hamster wheel. And I'm thinking, God, though, we do just try to get back on it. Yeah. It's just, it yeah. is our nature to just Let it do. Let on its own. It's the best thing I, I, I meant to say this about, and I think I've said this before, but about opening the store, when you were talking about Hazelnut, I think it's one of the best things that happened to me because, you know, in show business and in theater and in, in kind of define yourself by what you do. And, it, and every the first question out of most actors' mouths is like, oh, what are you working on? What are you doing? What are you working on? What, right. And, you know, I realized it took me out of the business for a little bit and made me really realize. And then Katrina happened and it really made me realize what's important in life. And, you know, uh, and it really was put everything in perspective. And so I love what I got to do. And when, I've, when we were shooting Mad Men, it was one of the first times in my life in theater or in, in show business that I actually enjoyed every minute of it. Mm. I wasn't worried about what's going to happen next or do I need to get this interview or whatever, you know, can I get on this t- other TV show? It was, it was, or movie or whatever. I was just enjoying it. One of the best things before that was um, I was in a play and then a film of a movie, a play called Jeffrey. And I was in Sunset Boulevard on Broadway when the movie came out, going on for the male lead for two weeks. And it was like a big to-do. And I'll never forget, B.D. Wong and his then partner came to see me because we were friends, very close friends. And he said, enjoy this. This Mm. doesn't happen all the time. You've got to Mm. enjoy this. 
And I said, yeah, 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 whatever. I got to get something, you know. And with Mad Men, it really was, I enjoyed every second of it. It was, hmm. and I, look, it was such a gift. So Your fans love to hear that. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's great to see how much uh, we've invested in that that role and, and uh, obviously in the show to know that the characters and the actors who play them um, kind of understood on the same level that we understand of how, how wonderful it is to watch. And, and you guys have That's such a unique I don't go back and watch it. I haven't really gone back much at all. Um, rarely, you know, I, I don't think I've seen the whole, the hobo code all the way through since it first aired. Oh, wow. I've seen clips, you know. Spoiler. Yeah. It's really good. Oh, oh, I know. And one day I want to sit down and watch the whole, you know, the whole series again. (laughs) But, you know, it it brings back so many memories and Mm. of a time like this is, this was before there were 32,000 stations, you know, AMC was like the first one of the cable stations was the first cable station to do programming of the par of HBO or any of the uh, movie studios. And that's right. We mentioned in our in our prologue to the whole thing that, you know, this thing was shopped around and he, he landed at AMC and, yeah. and no one at the time was like, oh, that was his first choice. Like everyone right. knew that this was like a flyer for them. But what was great is they let him do and create because yeah. there wasn't there weren't like two dozen suits in the room saying, well, can you stick Paris Hilton in this episode? All you have to do is watch one episode, maybe two to realize this is not a this is not script by committee. This is yeah. a man's vision. And, and, and they really let him do that. But um, getting back to the hobo code in season one, that was the first time I kind of had some real a really good scene. Usually, Sal would have a, a funny line here, or observation. You know, be very. Um, but that's the first time they started to branch. Or Matt started to branch out with his character, and uh, it was just I was I was to be honest, I was a little nervous. But the, what I learned quickly when we shot the pilot, because I I was I'd done theater, but when I walked onto the set. And we shot the pilot in New York. And I first, my first scene was with John Hamm. It was that first scene where I show him the, um, the cigarette, the, the cigarette thing. And we, we re- just ran it a little bit. And I, went, I looked at him and I went, okay, they're not kidding around. This guy is like perfection. He is, and, and I'll never forget, Betty Buckley told me years ago, because I've never done cabaret. I've mainly done Broadway. And it, you, you have to be a little bigger. And I'm a very gestury person, which worked for the character. But she said, you know, when you do cabaret, there's no fourth wall. You have to play the room you're in. And I just thought of that while I was, you know, I said, look, just take all the cues off this guy. Because he's A, the lead. You know, it's about him. And he's going to set, he will set the tone. So match the energy level, you know. And and I tried to do that. And it was just, uh, it was just instinctual that, that, because if you watch the show, it's a very, there's a very, interesting uh level of of acting it's not too much but there are moments that that you know build but it's very uh, contained and um subtle and they wanted me to appear yay to uh to a modern audience but not so that the world of 1960 would think that i was gay and that i think that's the tension we want to get into with you even more. Like that's the whole tension of Salvador, right? Is like, so this is the episode where we get some definition. Yes. Up until then, you're open for interpretation. I don't mean there's any mystery about if you're gay or not. I mean, if if anybody, 
anybody who didn't think you were gay also didn't think Le- wasn't Liberace paying attention. was gay, yeah, right? Exactly. Like really not paying attention. Yeah. But for for me, the que- the 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 tension again lies in how how does Sal relate to himself? Mm. Because what I, I wasn't expecting, not that I knew, but I was surprised to confirm that you that Sal was not going to go there. I kind of wondered if he had a side life. See, that's that's so interesting because I, I, I love, you know, it was the, um, getting back to the, the episode, I, I was, I, like I said, I was a little nervous and all the guys were filming at the bar where they were doing the twist, that scene, which was kind of, I think it was like two blocks away in downtown LA. And they came over to watch me film to give me like moral support. Oh, wow. Mm. It was just so sweet. I hadn't told anybody, told Janie, the costume designer, I was a little nervous. If you notice, I have a blue vest on with, if you look closely, the little fleur-de-lis embroidered all over it. And she goes, that's for New Orleans. That's how some New Orleans will be with you. When we first met, when I had my first fitting, and because she built a, clo- built a closet of clothes for you. And some things were repeated because you would repeat people. Yeah. You don't wear something new to work every day. That's right. And shoes, especially back then, were not disposable like they are now or mass produced. So you had maybe two or three pairs of shoes, you know. Um, and she called, she liked to play with Sal's clothes because she goes, called them Sal separates. Because sometimes I would mix, you know, different pants <laughs> with a vest. It wasn't all one thing. But when, when I met her, we just we just hit it off. We went we got along from that minute on like a house of mine because I do love costumes and I love fashion and I love and it's so detailed her work. It is so multi leveled and and everybody else's but I've, I've noticed just the textures. She would with texture how it would work on the camera and it, it's and I remember one day walking from my trailer onto set and she had like a stack of pocket squares and she kept on putting one in take no put this one in, take. <laughs> and but once in a while I'd get a choice. Like I think we'd get to pick what socks I wore, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, there is a there is a blog called Tom and Lorenzo. They had a section on Mad Men oh, while wow. it was running, and suddenly, like costuming becomes a whole other character. You would mm-hmm. think Janie Bryant yeah. was a character on the show, co- contributing to the script. The series was called Mad Style, and they were blogging when we were blogging. Right. And this is a married. Well, they were not a married couple because they weren't yet, but they are now this oh, twenty twenty five years old oh, together married couple. They're wonderful, and they're out of Philadelphia. And this was called Mad Style. They would do a weekly recap, and then they would do like on Wednesdays, this mad style. And they would do costume analysis. Between the two of them, they have a fashion and a film background. Oh, cool. So they really know their shit. Yeah. And they'll and they would do like if anybody noticed those Fleur de Lis, it would have been them. No right? que- that's they exactly would, the type of um, Yeah, they detail. would say, oh, J- uh, Joan is wearing blue and purple. That's when she's vulnerable or what I'm making that up, oh, wow. although I think I'm right about like and sh- and they ended up interviewing Janie, mm-hmm. who said you guys nailed it nine out of 10 times, like with my intention. The only other television I ever knew that did repeated costumes in that way was 30 something. It makes sense. Hope you know? had favorite earrings. Oh, and, and Gilligan's and, you know. Island, Gilligan's Island. That's true. <laughs> narrow, a narrow wardrobe. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are tour. How did Ginger bring so many beaded gowns? But one of the things I'll never forget with costume too, I had a shirt that I can't, it had a button to hold the tie here and it had another it was like just buttoned so cramped up and the uh, buttons to hold the collar down and it was it was just it was so restrictive 
and and I went, wow, this really works <laughs> for the character too. Well, that that, that brings up a, a, a major sort of topic that we wanted to cover with you, which is, first of all, had he ever had that ever happened? Had there ever been an experience of this sort of as overt as you know you could have in that setting type of experience? I yourself? think Sal came close. I think he had. Like I just said, he, he pushed those feelings as far down. Yeah. I think there is an aspect that is very similar to my uh, to my personality. You know, I was very naive. And I think in that time, people were sexually, some people were sexually naive. And I don't think he, there was no option. Mm, I think true. part of him thinks this is something wrong with me. I've got to fix it. I've got, it wasn't like he was, you know, disguised or or like, you know, trying to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. He thought he fit in. You know, yeah. he was he was playing the game. But especially, you know, what 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 I tried not to do because the writing is so brilliant on this show and and the scripts are so perfect <laughs> that I kind of just we we basically just played what was there. You know, I had a little backstory that I had going on in my head, but I wouldn't want to bring you know, Matt had the, every. It's so rich and so layered that you really don't have to. There's no subtext, really. It's it's almost Shakespearean in the way that you 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 know it's there. You yeah, know, everything bubbles up on the show. Up. There's no and, question. You know, and um, what was great also is that we did not know what was happening. No one knew what was happening from episode to, until we got the script and started reading it. Wow. So you have to play it exactly as it's written. You can't. Because you might play the result. You know, if you know in three episodes, you're going to have a heart attack. You you might play something else. So what, what I always noticed about that scene was, or especially upon rewatching, was Sal was prepared. When mm-hmm. the, the moment, the mm-hmm. moment he realized what, what this was, yeah. He was almost like, okay, I told myself what I would do if I was in this situation. I have to yeah. push it away. This right. is not going to happen. Yeah. So, um, you know, your 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 back arches a little bit and he was almost prepared with how to handle. Do you think that's part of it too? I think, you know, I think I think you were right in asking if if he this has happened before. I think Sal is also very prepared. Like like you said, this was his stock answer. I think he was caught by surprise. I mean, it really, he was not expecting this. So he didn't go there to flirt with Elliot. That was Maybe not his intention. Consciously, um, he went because, you know, the building had been redone and it's, you know, it's gorgeous and he wanted to see it. I don't think he really wanted to go to the bar with everybody. There's a scene, there's the scene where he's thinking about it, right? And all you're watching is you, is him thinking about it. Yeah. It just looks. When Lois has to ask him. It just looks like so much, like this is going to be so much work. Exactly. I, I think, you know, sometimes we instinctually make choices. Or we follow our instincts, that, even though we're not thinking about it. You know what I mean? We're not thinking naturally. I, I do this in, in my life. I, I, I push people away that are toxic. <laughs> I just, you know, I know this. And I don't have to say it to them. I don't have to. It's just instinctually I pull away or I gravitate toward people that are just, you know, balls of love and happiness. You know, in that period, if you'd asked anybody in that office, are any of your coworkers homosexual? They'd have said, no, they're not around. They don't exist. No one knew anyone. Yeah, I would know. Or... Right. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I had to pull on 
some of my own life because I was very closeted in, you know, growing up. I, you know, once I had this feeling, I thought, well, it, it, it's got to go away. I mean, I thought I was going to, I had to get married mm. up until like literally until I met Tom, wow. you know, when I was 26 years old, I didn't know any gay people. I really didn't until I started doing theater. Maybe they were around me, you know, but, or I didn't take the, the cue. Right. Uh, but I totally, yeah. um, you know, was closeted in that, that I can see, multiply that by a hundred for Sal, that this was not an option. And my kids, I've got 16 year old twins mm -hmm. and they grow up in a world where it's, it's so not an issue. And I'm just sort of like, wow, what a difference a generation makes. I know what it was like in high school. If someone was gay, it was, it oh, was murder, it was murder, you know, but, um, you know, add on to Sal, you know, besides, you know, the fear mm -hmm. of losing his job, of you know it was also a crime in many places yeah. you know right and put on and then another layer was good old catholic guilt so you know, and first that, first generation it. i mean yeah that's right a lot of pressure and i think also like you were asking do you think this happened before i think he there's some way like if i act on this i'm doomed hmm well, because there's no coming back. It's like it's like exactly. uh, it it's like a hundred times bigger version of if I start crying, I'm never gonna stop. Exactly. It's like if you had gone upstairs, that's yeah. a life decision. That's not yeah. just one night. Yeah. Right. I mean, the dam is open. The yeah. dam is open. And, and Sal might be thinking to himself, "I might be gay." Whereas if I go do this, I am gay. Well, you even until the age. Look at uh, Roy Cohn. In, I was watching um, Angels in America again, and genius, but he goes, a homosexual as AIDS, you know, or, or no, a homosexual as a man, he, 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 was, he was sleeping with men, but he wasn't a homosexual. Roy Cohn, yeah, Roy Cohn, exactly. In the, in the... What, what was so fascinating to me as a viewer, we're beginning to sense as the scene goes on that he's being hit on mm -hmm. and a proposition is about to be made. And you kind of go, well, how's this going to go? And you start to think, well, something will happen here. But what actually happens is the absence of the action. It's right. It upends every TV convention. Every yeah. time something's supposed to happen, whether it's exactly. Don, Don's going to shoot this, Don's going to shoot this guy. No, he's going to pay him off. Yeah. No, this this is how an intelligent, closeted homosexual response. Yeah. Yeah. Would would deal with this situation. It's entirely believable, almost inevitable. You know, that's what's brilliant about Matt. I mean, he, when he cast me, some people had this, this experience, like, you know, the minute Matt met John Hamm, he's like, that's him. And he fought for him. Um, he said the same thing when I walked in. He's oh, like, wow. after I read, he said, you know, you just were the guy. And um, he also said he didn't want it to be a joke. In almost every television that's it. series, that's it. the gay guy as much as they try to make him, especially maybe recently it's gotten better, but think about this. This was over 10 years ago, right? You know, the beginning of 2000. And it was, it was not a joke. It was serious. And it was, you know, it was painful. And people felt that pain and that anguish and that people would come up to me all the time. Like women wanted to hug me on the street. I just, you know, they, people were, were like, why can't you just be happy? And it, it was, it's really, I, I'm so proud to play that part because, and, and it was, and honestly, when I, I give all kudos to Madden and the writers and the directors, because it was, it, it was 
never. And he said, I never want this to come across as a joke. You know, I, I want it to be real, and and I and and I think he did he did a great job. But it's every time you open up the script, you're like, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the Hoboken. One of my favorite mm. things that happened when it aired. My high school drama teacher, the late Kitty Greenberg, who I just adored, um, she called. She's the reason why I'm an actor. She stopped me in the hallway, and and and, and you know, and said, "When are you going to audition for one of my plays?" You know you want to. You know you'd be good. Do it. <laughs> Lose the soccer ball. Because um, <laughs> I'd done stuff as a kid, and I loved it. But I didn't. I was. I was getting teased, and I thought, "Oh, it's effeminate to be in theater, whatever." So I tried to be something. Anyway, she was the first call, and mm. she goes, "You knocked it out of the park, buddy." Uh, like, that's awesome. Home run ballerina. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, it was just... One of the things I noticed that harkens to your theater gift, I think, you know, uh, Lois Sadler meets you first through listening to you, right? Mm -hmm. And she gets, she crushes on you from your voice. And then when, right. when, when she goes downstairs and she's poking around and she meets the, the two less, <laughs> less mm -hmm. uh, dynamic art guys. And when you enter the room, your voice, I was like, oh, that's... She, of course, she responded. That is such a rich theater oh. voice that you have, <laughs> you. and I had not really distinguished it until that moment. Oh wow! Like, it speaks literally, well, speaks volumes. They never had to tell me to speak up. Right. <laughs> they were like turning my mic down all the time. You're loud but shy. I also yeah. thought that is me. That, if I got to that, is what Matt Matt can meet someone and size them up so quickly. And yeah. no, just they're you know, and he when he put that line in there, he goes, "Well, that's that's you, honey." You know, mm. I was like, yeah. he didn't say honey, but, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not him. That's you. <laughs> yeah, that's me. But basically, that's you. You you're loud but shy. I am. I there's this bravado in front because I was a very shy kid, mm. and I think there's still you know there's always that little five year old somewhere in you that that pops up when you go into a room that you know at a party where you don't feel like you're the right fit for the room. You know what I mean? It, That's why some of us find Marie's crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we went there because we were, the other people that were with us like, come on, it's late. And, you know, let's go. And I, and I kind of like, I knew Patty was going to make me sing. That's why I didn't want to do it. So, <laughs> unless I've worked with a companist or everything and I know the, like, the key, like oh, it was, it was <laughs> so much. It was just, it was a fun night. Before I move on to other topics, Dan, sure. do you have any other hobo code questions? Do you think that Sal thinks he's fooling everyone do you, is he even conscious that he's trying no and do you think he thinks that he's successful at it i think denial is such a, a strong we don't give it the credit it's too mm. um, yeah. as long as he's fake as long as he can convince himself and the other one's buying it he's buying it too i, I okay. do believe i don't think he's he's you know ha, 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 i take the mask off when he goes home and right you know, okay. puts on a kimono and, and you know <laughs> things judy garland stuff because we as the viewer, we as the viewer just see those little, you know, the way he, yeah. oh, my, my, my neighbor posed for me, or I love right. Joan Crawford. And we're he like, doesn't huh? think that. There's also some lies that he's telling. Oh, yeah. He acts like he's a player. He's trying to pepper in his personality with, with straight, straight credentials. Yeah. I, I also think in, in writing, the interesting journey of, of Sal, I think Matt thought was that he had to swim with these sharks. He had yeah. to, mm -hmm. you know. Adhere to that, right. and that was the that was the end. Right. He wasn't that turning was it on and off, right? Yeah, yeah. That I think if, if Sal was, you know, 
living this dual life, it would have been a totally different thing. But he yeah. was he was playing the game as much as he could. And that's so fascinating because as just, as I'm listening to you and, and it and it fits right in with the idea that the show is entirely about double lives. It's entirely oh, about oh, yeah. what we say to ourselves. It's entirely about denial and, and and the stories we tell ourselves to get to get through. Don Draper in the open the in the pilot when he goes home. And it was kind of funny when when we we watched the um, screening, uh, he had different groups of us come watch the finished product before it uh, before it aired, like before you know we, and way before we went out to LA to film, and when they played, yeah, I have often walked down this street before. He goes, that's for you, Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hobo Code seems to be on the nose with Don's flashbacks about his childhood, right? Right. And the hobo that he meets and there's a code that the hobos live by and he teaches Mm -hmm. them that. And that's, you know, Elliot is talking to Sal in code. A friend of mine had a friend that was in the uh, in the industry, you know, in the advertising industry at that time was gay, came out and like, you know, so I talked his ear off and listened to everything he had to tell me. Um, And then one of the advisors on the show, a lot of uh, Sal's some of Sal's experiences he actually had. but, you know, back talking about code, I can't remember the name of the book now. Ugh. But anyway, you know, it's like what kind of lapel Boutonnier you'd have. or and, and, you know, later on in the 70s or 60s, it was the handkerchief. It was the, the handkerchief. You know, whatever in the, which yeah, color, I remember all that it is, stuff. what color it is. All that stuff. In the, all, I remember in the 80s, there yeah, was still the all, that, all that code. And it was, yeah. you know. So I have a question. And it's, uh, you were in the Tales of the City sequel yes yes and in a in a a powerful and pivotal scene if you haven't seen it so one of the original characters from the original tales of the city uh now has this hot young boyfriend and the two of them right mouse and they attend a dinner party of mouse's friends and brian you are among those friends so Mm -hmm. what you've got is this fascinating culture clash of the older school gays who have survived AIDS and lost all their people and and the younger queers. And it was part of what was so beautiful about the scene was it, it, there was no right side of that fence. It was just everybody getting heard. But so you've now been graduated. You've now been uh, elevated to elder. (laughs) Yeah. To elder. Right. And and do you carry that consciousness? Do you, is that a thing for you? Are you just a guy living your life? I've just started to, I've just started to, I can't tell you how many friends of mine who have gay children, they came to me and said, I think, I think so-and-so is gay and haven't said anything, but I just don't want to screw this up. I just want to make sure that they, you know, know that everything's okay. And, you know, another friend of mine and some very conservative people, you know, some very, very conservative people. And um, one of my favorites is an old friend. He said, my son's gay and he's getting married. And he, and I, he says, what do I do? And I said, well, you throw either the, you know, throw the wedding with them or the rehearsal. And he goes, I just want to make it right for him. I just want to, you know, and it really warms my heart that, you know, that people would come to me and ask, you know, what to do or how um, they just don't want them to hurt. They want them to make it as easy on them as they can. Uh, I really like that's That's mm. the best part for me. Um, I, when you can ease anyone's pain, I, I take that road. Back to, back to Sal and, yes. and, and, and Mad Men, you know, that, that's one of the things, you know, he, there was such self-loathing and, you know, this, this cannot happen. 
This cannot happen. And I, many, you know, you think about a lot of some of these suicides, even still not as much today, but these, you know, cannot deal with this. The line that kind of broke the conversation for Sal when you finally kind of got up and left Mm -hmm. what Elliot says, what are you afraid of? Mm -hmm. What am I afraid of? How how about everything? I remember the director, Phil, had a couple walk by and I totally like, I see them. And I, mm. it's almost like they're almost getting caught. Mm. And, you know, and I'm trying to I remember that just like, remember like the first time I went to a, or did anything with a guy or, you know, with gay bar, like, is anyone watching? You know what I mean? I'm not going to be found right. out. Right. And it was so smart of Phil to have the, because he just had them walk by and it's, it was strategic. It was yeah. not just, you know, oh, here comes an extra. Go, just a little, re- just a little reminder. Yeah. 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 I, I also uh, thought um, uh, Elliot, and forgive me, I don't remember the actor's name. Uh, what a per- what a match! Like oh, no, what a it. what a right? beautifully balanced. I mean, matched a match for your intellect, a match for yeah. your your it, sensitivity. It was, your, every, so it, sensitive. It, it was oh, a really well balanced. Oh my god! You, you know, you feel mm-hmm. it. You feel yeah, it. Right. You get the zap. But, but but that that code talking that they're doing. Uh, you should see the view from my room. Of yeah. course, it's night. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's you had said earlier. There's no, there's no subtext, but that's we're getting whole, less and less ambiguous as the right. conversation. But goes the, on. but there's, but it's also all subtext. It's both. It's and it's also not overt, right? No, it's you that's know, the it's code. like now, it's, it's like, like you know, hey, yeah. you come on to my room. Let's you know. Here's my key. No, all right, let's put a proper ending on this, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. I really awesome. appreciate it. It's nice to. Uh, know that you all still like the sal <laughs> oh we, we love, love sal. sal it was it was when we knew this episode was coming up we were like this is it we gotta get we gotta get brian it's just oh. such a moving storyline such a powerful get ready to get your heart broken that's what yeah. that's what it is well that's like yeah. we always said when we read you know not in Mad Men Land. In Mad Men Land, everyone's hearts get heart gets broken. You know, <laughs> That's right. it's not a tragedy, ending. not a comedy, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> truly. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank Good you. to talk to you. Anytime. We thank you. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye. Take care. Well, there he was. That was Brian. Wasn't that great? Again, uh, the amount of insight he has into that character. By the way, we, you know, we did Zoom and he's gorgeous. Like I was, he, I, t- I, he's not a Twitter guy. And I told him he needs to check out Room Raider on Twitter. And I wish that they could rate him because, you know, he's a design, we, we talked about his design shop, right? And his, the, 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 his background was picture perfect for what you want on a Zoom. He's just, he's, but he's, his eyes, he's got these beautiful, he's just, and I, I think I spent, uh, a full two minutes complimenting his skin and asking about his skincare regime. I mean, he's just, he's just gorgeous. He really delightful. Wonderful guy. He was awesome. And uh, you know, that that's how you want the actor who plays, you know, these beloved characters to be, you know, thoughtful, a lot to say, understands why the fans are, are so, in, so invested and uh, it's awesome. Love him. Love you, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Woo. All right. Let's get to, uh, this is one of those episodes. (sighs) This goes very deep. It's a deep and wide episode. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about plot that fills in holes, whether it's in Don's background or the larger story or the mystery of Don for this season one. 
different episodes hit different things like, you know, um, 5G, where he has his first flashback yes. and we begin to see and, and we meet Adam and all this kinds of stuff. I don't know of another episode. Um, there are certainly some that come later that fill in, you know, some missing gaps. But this is like a treasure trove of it's how Don became Don in a number in a number of very psychological ways, how Don became Don. We're now introduced to those flashbacks as a, it, it wasn't just a one shot deal. Okay, now now we got it. We're going to get flashbacks. Yeah, now it's a storytelling device. Yeah. Right. So The Hobo Code is the eighth episode in season one. The writer was Chris Provenzano. Director was Phil Abraham. The original air date was September 6th, 2007. And it takes place during July of 1960. Yeah, so, and actually, um, Brian mentioned Phil as the director. Right. So there it is. And you can file this under little known facts. Matthew Weiner, regardless of who wrote the episode, Matt would do the final pass. He would take it <laughs> and sort of put it into his own uh, handwriting, if you will. He's the final say so. Yeah. So yeah. And that's that <laughs> whether is, he's listed or not as a co writer. Yeah. That is, that is confirmed uh, out of his mouth. So we've got this hobo. <laughs> and I feel like the hobo gives us the theme. Um, in a, in a, in a lot of different sort of uh, spider webs out into into some different themes in this episode, the code of the hobo, right? The, there's the literal etching that he did, um, and what that, how that informed Don, because that was Don being told. Let me go back a second. One of the things we learn about Don, Dick rather, in the flashbacks, uh, bowl cut Dick, is his view of himself as a whore child. And it isn't just his view of himself. It's what it's, don't you know, haven't you heard? So he doesn't understand. And this is the first time he gets any outside influence of someone saying, no, I haven't heard. The world doesn't know this about you. You're being told something that isn't necessarily true. So it's his first go back to piercing of the bubble from right like it's it's his first piercing of his own uh psychological bubble that he's gotten is from his family and then the last piece of that is him seeing this code written on the this etching that tells him what what's the exact phrasing you you this is a this is the home of a dishonest man this dishonest man lives here yeah yeah it it's it's Don's psychological origin story, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Everything we see about Don from this point forward can, from a psychological perspective, and even some of the things we've already seen, point directly to this type of experience with this stranger who calls him an honorary, right? And that's almost the signal to uh, say, yes. you're an honorary, meaning you're always a hobo. You could you could put the suit on, you could have the job, you could have the wife and the the kids and the whole bit. You and I are simpatico here forevermore. And I think that's as close to an origin story as we see for Don in terms of how he views the world. What's interesting about that too is it goes both ways. You know, the hobo is actually a someone who seems to have been educated. He was, uh, he was, you know, he's a man of the rails, right? So the hobo is almost disguised as a hobo covering up his own honor, actually his own 
you know, but he also left a wife and kids. So it's, it's complicated. It's both, it's the suit, the suit you put on, the costume you put on goes both ways. I think there's a sense from the hobo. I think what Don learns from the hobo from that speech in particular is whatever you think's tying you down, doesn't tie you down. It's tying you down only as much as you're letting it. That could be a wife and kids and a mortgage doesn't tie you down. Now we can argue whether morally that's the right thing to do to just up and leave responsibilities that you might have. That's one side of it, but he's just saying, don't let that tie you down. The other thing is the things that people tell you that could be total bullshit. You're a whore child. And in fact, you know, that, that the, the where that comes from is kind of neither here nor there. But if you're constantly told you're a whore child, you can leave that as well. You can leave that behind. It's, it may be here nor there, but it's actually our first, it's our first hint to the, to one of the mysteries we keep trying to uncrack. To Don's birth. Who the yeah. hell is Don's mother? Well, now mm-hmm. we have an indication, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that may be a literal, a literal. Uh, right. We assume that comes from somewhere. However, it's kind of been handed down or, or, or used to, to obviously completely damage him <laughs> psychologically. You're, I think you, I think you bring up an interesting point about. I think this may have been the impetus in in his leaving home and it definitely, you know, and his decisions about cutting and running. Um, but partic- but this one, this first thing where he where he enlists. We're, we're halfway through season one and we could probably rattle off a half a dozen instances of Don referring, whether he does or not, referring to cutting and running. Yeah. To getting the hell out of there. Uh, whether that's why I keep money in my drawer, that that when the shit comes down, I'm out of here or I don't want to go to school tomorrow or whatever the the different analogies are. Um, Don is given at this moment of really respect. Again, I still say this is the first time anybody showed him an ounce of respect that he could recall Uh, this hobo sort of treating him as a, with humanity yeah. Uh, by teaching him something and, and calling him kind of brethren with the chalk and, and teaching him something. And then what he learns when he looks at the signpost afterward. So here's what people think of my family. The hobo viewed the mother as less cruel, right? Yeah. And he's, and that, and Dick is like, no, 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 she's not my mother. And and so there was something there, and I, I don't, I don't know, I don't necessarily have a conclusion that I'm drawing about that, but there's some, there's something about that, Don, that, that Dick knows she's cruel, and seeing that the, that she, with all her religion, is, is, is perceived as the good guy. There does, there's something there. There's a mix. There's a mixed message that we get. The first is in 5G when he talks about her with Adam. He was unsparing of his feelings about her, hates her, and died of stomach cancer. Good, you know that's yeah. that's pretty unambiguous. Uh, yet here, it's true she's drawn a little bit more sympathetically than his father is. So we don't. That's another gap. She's being kind of Christian or charitable, you could say, to the hobo by giving him an opportunity. Um, but she sure doesn't seem to like. Don, uh, dick very much right and we know and we know from don just how how deeply he carries that so, so being nice to the hobo could have just been a plot device to get him to stay the night 
<laughs> yeah. you know, a way of a way of getting them to interact so that that there'd be a reason to do that. And she's doing it under this veil of religion that that allows them to to cross paths. Just want to throw in also that the actor that plays his father, his name is Joseph Culp. That is such fantastic casting. I mean, mm. that is that is a man who looks like John Hamm's <laughs> terrible father. Like it really, it, it, it just remarkable. I mean, he does a great job, but the visual, when you first see him, you're like, oh, I, you, I can see it. You can see, you know, you can't always see it. Sometimes you see same hair color, you yeah. know. The but, eyes or something. But yeah, but that's, whew, that's really. It is, it is great. You know, this this whole flashback universe that, that they have there on the, the, the house and the, the whole look. Uh, including the look of the father. I don't know if, if, if anyone's seen the movie Nixon, the Oliver Stone movie Nixon. There I never are did a few see it. Scenes of Nixon's childhood, which was in Whittier, California, which was, but in the same time, it was it was Depression era America, and um, it just looks like the the set design, the 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 clothing, the 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 costuming is just identical and i thought they're both brilliantly done go check it out and you will see just a very similar look and feel and color palette to, to everything between those two uh eras that are depicted so it's on the long were... long long list i i'm at the point where if the pandemic remains yeah, you might get there remains as it is i <laughs> right. still feel like i'll never get there i still feel like yeah. i'll never i'll never catch up Let's go watch nixon Let's go watch nixon so one of the other one of the other things the hobo kind of brings as metaphor is this idea of, of hierarchy, of who has power over who. The show opens with the elevator operator and then the, the janitor and, you know, the, the blatant racist look of disgust on Pete's face. But, but to me, what's, what's even more prominent is later when uh, Peggy and Pete are on the couch doing their do um, and how the janitor is, is considered so irrelevant as a human being. They don't, it's, they act as though they are in an empty office. Right. Well, I think they, they fully think that they are. I mean, maybe they're used to the janitor coming around, but, but that's <laughs> I what, don't know. Do you... they, he doesn't count. He doesn't yeah. count. Yeah. He doesn't count. They can fuck in front of a janitor because it's just a janitor. And that's that has to, all to do with hierarchy and who matters as a human being. If they thought a secretary was, was in early, they would have been more careful. And the secretaries mm. are pretty low on the totem pole, mm. but not as low as a, as a black janitor. How come every time we have a party, the ladies have to sit and listen to the men talk? You know, anytime Don goes to Midge's, I'm I'm all in. I, I really love seeing what what's going to happen or what what the how things are going to play out because so far every single time he's there, something consequential happens. But with regard to the hippies and and hierarchy, you know, he's going into this uh, this scene that he didn't expect, which was they're gonna they're gonna smoke some weed and they're gonna listen to Miles Davis. Very different entertainment than what he thought he was getting when he when he made the trip down to the village to see Midge. Another another great example too of Mad Men it, you know 
even though we've been to Midge's apartment and even though we've met hippies, I mean, we're now starting to adjust to mm-hmm. that. We go into these worlds that are, we don't know, it's like a new, like we don't know where we're going to end up. And again, yeah. even though this is now familiar territory, it was once again, not, it was, it was not familiar territory to us in how, in yeah. all the different people. And it, Don says this after he gets high, all, he feels like Dorothy, everything's in color, but it's sort of like that Mad Men takes you through those worlds. I mean, you, you go into that apartment and maybe it's dingy, but it's also certainly a different color palette, right? Yeah, there's there's a different life happening. And, and, and for the sake of accuracy, by the way, this is 1960. The word hippie doesn't exist. Beatniks. These are, these are beats. These you are know, beats, These yeah. are people that like to go down and read poetry and go to the gaslight or wherever else and do their thing and smoke pot and listen to miles. But, you know, Don has this way of crossing over genres and crossing over different worlds. And this is a great example. This is sort of the prime example, certainly in season one of Don just exploring different worlds. And um, he gets there, gets high, goes into the bathroom. And that's when he has this flashback, this whole thing about the, the family and the mom and the dad and the hobo all happen literally as he's washing his face in the mirror, looking at himself in the mirror. And he has this kind of, we see it throughout this. And we even going back to, to um, Babylon, this superiority sense of superiority over Roy and the friends. And, you know, at the end of the episode that, you know, the police are coming out and he, the, he says, you know, you can't go out there. I can kind of thing. So he clearly has this sense of superiority over them. I was going to say the same thing. He goes into these worlds, but he, but he hates it or he, he acts, he, he acts like he's above it, but again, that's hierarchy. And and that moment of I can go out there and you can't, that's because of the suit he put on. That goes that speaks yeah. to And that's that's because I look like Don Draper and I look great in this suit and I can wear this hat and I look like uh, I just sold insurance in that building, not not got high with a bunch of with a bunch of beats. And then we watch and, it happen. Um, we watch him walk right past truly. those right through those cops. Yep. But I but I also think it's you know, based on what we learn in the flashback. Don gets to have it both ways in a sense. He can, deep down, he knows he's the hobo, but he can walk out like he's king of the world. And that's the privilege of, you know, you could say a sharp looking white guy in 1960 for sure. And he uses it and he knows he can use it. And and if it's to his advantage, he'll continue to use it because frankly, it has, it keeps him from being accountable when, when it's convenient. So what the hell? (laughs) There's nobody on the planet who, who really wouldn't use that from time to time. And he also, he sticks it to him, right? It's, he stick it's, they give him, they give him all kinds of shit for being establishment, but guess what? Establishment can walk me out this door. You guys are trapped. So it's an interesting, uh, he he knows his privilege and he uses it. What, what always struck me about this and it kind of made me think about it more watching it again. Why, why does Don have this flashback now? Hmm. What is it about? I, I had, it took me a while to, to see any connection at all between his upbringing and the hobo and that whole that extended flashback that we see and what's happening in Don's life. And I think it goes I, I trace it back to the the bonus from Bert. I think you're right. That's interesting. Go ahead. Well, Don gets a bonus for not doing anything in particular. He gets a bonus because they like him. You know, like he says to Mitch, I'm not quite sure why they gave me those. And it's like, okay, so here's 20, here's money falling in his lap. 
he's winning a lot of business. It's not that it, and it, so just to be clear that it's not undeserved, but just from the advertising uh, perspective, what's interesting about that is, you know, at some point you move up in advertising and, and you start as copy or art and you move up and you become creative director. And so you're now supervising both. And then at some point you move way up as a, as a president, as a, you know, as a partner, as whatever you move up to, and you are now merged with accounts and you're making decisions bigger decisions. And Don is yeah. clearly, while he's not an account guy yet, and he's not there yet, demonstrating, um, I mean, he's the guy who sold it. That's right. His contributions is what drives a lot of the yes. revenue, for sure. Um, but in terms of this particular piece of recognition, I don't think it's for any one thing. I think Bert, you know, gives him this whole speech, this Ayn Rand, and you're unsentimental about all the people that depend on your work. And you and I are alike, which is kind of reminiscent of what the hobo says, you know. So what oh, I good one. what I kind of take from that is perhaps a, a tinge of even guilt of unworthiness, right? Because you know the hobo comes to do work and doesn't get paid, and Don, without having done anything, you know, singular, like I said, he's deserving in general, but he didn't like this. Isn't a commission for a piece of business that he got or something like that. It kind of falls in his lap. He wants to dump it. He's clearly not bringing it back to his wife. That's a whole yeah. other yeah. thing that he's not. He's not replenishing the uh, the, the the five thousand the, the desk the desk drawer account. He's not yeah. getting them a house in Cape May. You know, maybe he thinks money like this will get taken away. You know, may, not 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 consciously, uh, yeah. but maybe there's an unconscious. You know, that he doesn't get that nickel or whatever that was. I sense I sense a tinge of guilt. It's all. It's kind of like a like a you know, some version of survivor's guilt, right? Like, I don't, I'm really not worthy of this. I'm not supposed to have this. This isn't, I'm not the guy that gets this, you know, he's still the little boy, the whore child. The whore child, but the, but also daddy's going to take this away. Like that's Mm -hmm. why he needs to push it. This is all, this isn't going to see this nickel isn't his. So I better, even when you earn it, you could, right. I've seen people earn money and not get it. And here I am getting this this cash dumped on me. So interesting. To me, there was always a reason. What is it? Why is Don look in the mirror after getting high, after hanging out with, with modern day hobos, right? With what, you know, beatniks or where he's supposedly is superior, but really is, is kind of one of them. So one of these things is is uh, that we learned from the flashback is the 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 deep religious stance that his I guess stepmother takes in life, and then and then we've already had this Jesus speech. You already know about Jesus. Either he lives in your heart or he doesn't. Every woman wants choices. But in the end, none wants to be one of a hundred in a box. She's unique. She makes the choices and she's chosen him. She wants to tell the world he's mine. He belongs to me, not you. She marks her man with her lips. He is her possession. You've given every girl that wears your lipstick the gift of total ownership. Marking your man with your lips is another code. Anyway, so he's got this. So he goes into this like he he starts preaching (laughs) in the middle of a pitch. And we now see somewhat of a source of that. Yeah, I think there's definitely some kind of a tie to the the, the stepmom and her her way of 
bringing religion into sort of everyday language. We don't see it till later, but we know it's part of Don. Exactly. We see him do that and we're like, what is yeah. that? And then later we see, oh, he's he's been schooled. That's right. It, it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of turn of phrase for sure. At for the, sure. At the very minimum. And I, I kind of see the the speech itself having a serving a different purpose or maybe maybe two purposes at the same time, which is you know, when he says you don't want no one wants to be a hundred one of a hundred in a box, that's directly from Peggy's lips. That's right. Even though Don wasn't there when she told that to Freddie. But Freddie Freddie caught it because Freddie does have competency. <laughs> that's right. And maybe he oh, I think he might have said that to Don when he was telling Don about Peggy was That's right. She said, I don't want to be a hundred in a box. Okay. And he yeah, and he said, That's interesting, isn't it? That's right. And Don so Don knows that's Peggy's metaphor. It's yeah. not in the yeah, it's not in the copy, it's not in the visual, it's it's Peggy's words. I think what Don's doing here is, you know, the work that you the work that you think highest of is the work that you defend the hardest and that you fight for. And when he sees this isn't getting sort of the love from the client that he thinks it deserves, he pulls out this, you know, this grand gesture of Jesus. And I, I don't have to tell you whether this works. You know, if it works, get out of here if if you don't like it kind of thing, which is like the it's what every salesperson wants to do, right? It's kind of say, like if you're not you're not buying my line, pal, you can get the hell out of here. Yeah, if you don't if, if you don't like it, go back to what you've been doing. How's that going for you? Exactly, you're number six or whatever they are. So Don's living out every salesperson's fantasy on one level. What the way Freddie describes it later is is circling the village three times and burning it down, which kind of makes it sound like it was a Don Draper performance, right? Like this is. Don's, you know, the, the the grand performance by the great Don Draper. But in reality, what I see it as is deep, deep, deep respect. Even at this early first crack at, at the bat stage for Peggy of respect for her work. He's he is he is going down swinging for her work because he knows its quality. Look, it's her first thing. It's not the best thing that's ever been written in the history of ad copy, but it's it's solid work. And he will not let it die. He will not fight this way for Paul's work. He is already, and I just think that is so much respect for Peggy, whether it was thought out that he would have to do this or if it's just gut instinct. But I I take note of of that when, you know, if Don's going to burn the village down, it's going to be for the be- for, for, for quality work. And that's what he's doing. That's a great take. I just wondered if there's, I mean, maybe it absolutely, it's a great take and it's, it's perfectly valid. And I sort of, I just always, I just think Don's always on the edge and I just think it's, <laughs> this was, this was Don just, just going, Don, Don you know, doing just Don things. Yeah. To, like his unpredictability and his, and all his unresolved, um, anger and, and, and everything his all his un, unresolved stuff in life can just come out in different ways, you know, but, but That's it's true. a valid and it's a, it's a it's a more generous and and rather touching interpretation. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. That's, and look, none of this is mutually exclusive, right? That's so right. It, it could be all of them in some that's right. in some way or another. Or that's not. right. I mean, because and, uh, that's right because it, because he could have defended he could have defended the hell out of her work out of out of his uh, faith in it in a more 
sane and less risky way. It just happened. Right. This one paid off, but this was bananas. Everybody was looking at him like, Holy, what the fuck did you just do? And what are you thinking? And then it worked. Yeah. <laughs> exactly so, right. um, you know, so let's talk about Peggy. Uh, you know, it's great. That's a great segue to Peggy. Um, mm. Peggy has had an unpredictable an unbelievable day. She put on her best outfit as though, even though she's not the one who's going to be in the meeting presenting her best outfit. Um, and this has been said, this is, this is a, a true story that Peggy's costuming is definitely designed to appear that she made it herself. <laughs> Peggy's Peggy sews her own clothes. Yeah. Um, and you know, we talked about some of the costuming and, uh, with Brian. So, um, all the costuming is so deliberate, but this was definitely sort of her Sunday best about how she felt about herself. So Peggy is, Peggy comes in to have a nervously great day. And then the first thing that happens is her fantasy gets fulfilled. She's been secretly hoping that Pete will come back around. She's been trying to resolve herself to the fact that he never will. And that this is her life now. And then all of a sudden, they're doing it on the couch. And, um, there's that wonderful, um, there's that wonderful line she says later to Don, which is an indication of, of a transformation in Peggy where he notices the ripped blouse. And she says, I'll start keeping a spare. Um, <laughs> who keeps, who keeps spares Don Draper, who, you know, has reasons to keep spares. So Peggy, Peggy has now just become a, a woman who needs to keep a spare for the, the same sexually reasons. necessary spare top, sexually necessary spare. Um, you know, and, and then they, they win the pitch and then they sort of do that little dance with her where they pretend that she is serving them drinks and then they celebrate Peggy sex in the morning career advancement by middle of the day and her all great stuff and she's just exuding the joy to the extent that she organizes a celebration let's <laughs> you know uh, I, actually i don't remember if she's the one who says it first let's go let's go have drinks but she is she is at the helm of yes i deserve to be celebrated and then she tries to be humble and she tries to be but they you know suddenly she is just you know her boyfriend's back mm. She's just become a whole different person out of this, out of the the selling of her copy, and let's go celebrate. And then Pete does what he does, and you know I get a tear in my eye thinking of of Elizabeth Moss's incredible acting and Peggy's incredible pain, and we're looking at Pete's cruelty. And oh, there was something else I noticed visually. Uh, more than just visually, I'm just going to, I'm just going to hit this one, two, three, one, you've got, uh, the scene in PJ Clark's again, non-New Yorkers. That's a real place. Um, I've, I've been there on the, in the fifties. It's sort of, it's still kind of that vibe. Although this was all mm -hmm. recreated in LA. Yeah. It looks remarkably like it. They did a great job. Yeah. They did a great job. Um, and it's still, it's one of those old timey, you know, it still looks like that. Um, one, you've got the dancing, uh, particularly the wonderful moment of the twist, which is when he rejects her. You've got that dancing. The next thing is um, the scene with Salvatore and Elliot. And there's a moment in that scene toward the 
end. This is purely visual. In my mind, I'm looking at the two of them across from each other and they either I think it's when I think it's when their hands almost touch or start to touch, and then they both they both at the same time lean back, and it looked like a dance move, and I had just never seen it that way. And then the next thing, they're doing the bunny hop in Midge's apartment. It is one, two, three, dance, 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 and that's that really is just great. again that's a Mad yeah. Men gift, right? That is that is. Um, that's but, awesome. But getting back to Peggy and her. Very perfect, near perfect, no good day. (laughs) We see her the next morning at her desk, probably with a spare in her drawer now. Perky and hopeful as Pete Campbell comes in. And Dan, I'm just guessing that you don't understand why Peggy would be hopeful. (laughs) That's actually not true. Okay. That's actually not true. Okay, good. I, no, I, I, I think, first of all, at that age, you are mm-hmm. given to being, you know, you can rejuvenate as deeply as you feel things. Um, you can rejuvenate and yeah. sort of come, bounce back the next day and look back on it and go, well, everything wasn't great, but overall it was still a great day. And I'm going to take from, I think Peggy especially is intelligent enough to process things like that. So I don't, yeah, I don't begrudge her to her hopefulness yeah but she's hopeful about Pete. and yep well that was that didn't end the way she wanted but there were some good parts too (laughs) there were some good parts and you know part of it so i mean i just i just know that one of the pitfalls of having a brain is you make you fill in the blanks and usually you fill in the blank in in a relationship. So a lot of the relationship you have sometimes can be in your head with yourself and with your own chatter about what might be happening over there with that person. There's the thing where you're like he you know, you had a great night and then you walk away and then you're like in a panic of like oh my god, he hates me, he hates me, he's never going to call her. Whatever crazy you might put yourself through. And she did the opposite in this case, which is cuz you don't know. You know, they're not texting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know she's like maybe he rethought it maybe he was in a mood and he rethought it and he's going to come in and work and it and he'll and he'll be kind to me again and that's you know that's where he was out of nowhere once right exactly or that came out of nowhere for her that's exactly right there was no evidence leading up to the the little shit had didn't even read her copy right you know, he just, he pays zero attention to her until he's having a bad marriage. And now he takes that out on Peggy in a, in a loving way. Pete's not my favorite. Anyway, I just really, I identified with that, um, almost pathetic hopefulness. <laughs> like I just, I identified with it. I understood it. I get it. Um, and you know what? Peggy's at the beginning of some great stuff. At, so fuck Pete Campbell. <laughs> we're gonna end every episode that way i'm good i can fuck pete campbell fuck pete campbell right uh, um at you the know. end of season one the wheel <laughs> thank you everybody it's been great fuck pete campbell fuck pete campbell um and on that note let us take a break fuck pete campbell quotes roberta quotes let's talk about quotes all right and just 
my favorite. It's it, it's just a sentimental favorite. There's very little to say about it. It's it's one of the rare quotes that I I say in life. Uh, I think I might have even said it during. Uh, I might have even said it to Brian. Yeah. Home run ballerina. That's a good one. It just makes me feel so good. <laughs> it just does. Well, Freddie says it with so much affection. Uh, yeah. And and uh, and honesty for for with to, to Peggy. So. Exactly. I just made it. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, listen, this is not a feel good show. <laughs> right. Right. And it's, yeah. um, and, and it's sort of, it's said to an underling, right? It's said to a junior member of the staff. It's inappropriate to call your boss ballerina unless <laughs> you work for the ballet. But <laughs> other than that, <laughs> what's your quote, Dan? <laughs> Don and Midge's apartment. I hate to break it to you, but there is no big lie. There is no system. The universe is indifferent. Love that line. That's a great um, line. If Don had one credo, I think it would be what he says to Adam in 5G, right? Uh, my life goes from one direction forward. If he had a second credo, it would be the universe is indifferent, I believe. Yeah. that That's uh, the way Don goes about his business. Yeah. All right. So this has been wonderful. I, again, we thank you, Brian Bat, for- Thank uh, you, Brian for your wonderfulness. Uh, just thank you. And um, next week we talk about the episode shoot. Mm. I can't wait. I haven't, this one I haven't seen in years. There are many things I remember about it Me that neither. are yeah. powerful images. And there, I guarantee many things about it. I don't remember. <laughs> I can't wait to rediscover. Yeah, it's going to be like a re-education for sure. Yeah. It's great though. But um, what we do remember is pretty damn powerful. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, please review us favorably. <laughs> yeah, please. leave the leave the lousy reviews somewhere else. Yeah, give us, give us, give us our five stars, and and that'll help us. That'll really help us to get out there in the world. Please share, please uh, share our podcast. Please, you know, help us out. We, if you're enjoying us, tell a friend. Tell a friend and, and tell them all. Well, also, I'm going to put a plug in for our email address. If you want to send us any questions, things that we could discuss perhaps on a future episode, um, feel free to send a question to questions with an S at theycoinditpod.com. Viewer mail. We can't wait. You can tweet at us too and uh, follow us on Instagram. And thank you. We're really excited to have you with us and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody.